If you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1 this morning. We're picking up where we left off last Lord's Day, and we are looking this morning at Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29, the end of the chapter. You'll find that on page 983, I believe, if you're using a copy of the Church Bible, and I know as usual, you'll find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. We are looking at Colossians 1, 24 to 29. And as the Apostle Paul has already set out the glories and the preeminence of Christ and all the reasons we should see his glory and preeminence as the creator and the redeemer of his people, Paul now says, picking up on his statement about becoming a minister there in verse 23, and really that ought to be translated a servant, he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, John Bunyan, the great Baptist Puritan, uh, of whom you, you all are probably familiar, was imprisoned for the second time for a total of 12 years in the Bedford prison in the middle of the 16th century for preaching the gospel. Um, Bunyan refused to preach the gospel under state authority. He refused state licenses, and in a barn, he was preaching John 9, and that passage where Jesus asked the blind man that he heals, do you believe in the Son of God? And for preaching, do you believe in the Son of God, Bunyan was in prison for 12 years. Uh, He had a blind daughter. He said that being in prison was like having his flesh ripped off his body, being away from his blind daughter. And yet John Bunyan did that out of his commitment to the Lord Jesus and to the church. And as a result, the benefit and fruit of that is that we have what is arguably the second greatest book in human history, The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, John Owen, the great Puritan theologian, actually tried to get Bunyan out of jail, and one of my best friends said to me once, I praise God that Owen was unsuccessful in getting Bunyan out of jail, because if he had, we wouldn't have the Pilgrim's Progress. Um, there There is a fruitfulness that flows from the suffering of those who are committed to the Lord Jesus, especially in gospel ministry. There is, there is fruitfulness from suffering. We have so immunized ourselves in our culture, from any suffering, that as one theologian has said, we have so little fruitfulness because we are so wanting to be immune from all suffering. Here, the Apostle Paul, for the first time in this letter, begins to speak about himself. It's very interesting. From this point and and going back, all he has done is talked about Christ. All he's done is held out the Lord Jesus in all of his majesty and glory and excellence, and he is He has labored to tell us why Jesus is preeminent over all things in the universe, in the church, over our lives. 
And now for the first time, Paul begins to speak about his own ministry. And you'll notice there, he begins that in verse 23 when he says that the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, I want us to look at two things this morning in this passage. And what Paul is doing is he is talking about the end result of his sufferings as a gospel minister and the fruitfulness that uh, were the result of his sufferings. And Paul's going to do that in two ways. He's going to tell us that his suffering as a servant for Christ was to make the word of God fully known, and his suffering as a servant of Christ was to present the saints fully mature. So to make the word fully known and to present the saints fully mature. And Paul's going to do that here in verses 24 to 29. Now, notice Paul says there at the beginning, I rejoice in my suffering for your sake and in my flesh. I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is the church. He is, he is telling us what he endured as a servant. There at the end of verse 23, he says, I became a servant. Paul thought of himself preeminently as a bondservant. Almost 50 times in Paul's letters, he speaks of himself as a bondservant, somebody who's lost all their rights, somebody who's lost all their freedom and all their liberties to serve another. Um, What a remarkable statement. I thought about this all week. What would it look like if we really took to ourselves the mentality, I am a slave of Christ? I can only do what the Lord Jesus has called me to do. What would that look like? Look, I love freedom. I know you love freedom. We all love freedom. Everybody's afraid of losing freedom. There's a sense where when we come to Christ, we lost our freedoms spiritually. We lost them. We gained all the freedom in the world. But Paul teaches us that the mentality we ought to have is that I am a servant of Christ. This is not just about ministers of the gospel. He is setting out for the people of God what we ought to think about ourselves. Um, He is a servant. And he is a sufferer. Notice, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now, Paul is not some kind of spiritual masochist. He's not, he's not like some of the uh, monastics that literally wanted to suffer more because they thought somehow that was going to gain them more uh, spiritual capital. Paul understands there's something God is working into his sufferings that is going to produce fruit for the church, that what he endures in his flesh and in his ministry is going to have benefit for the people of God for all generations. Um, Paul, by the way, has never met the Colossians. This is all the more striking when you think about that. He's he's never met one member of their church. I mean, this is remarkable. Paul's in prison. He says that at the end of this letter. He's in chains, writing a letter to people he's never met, and saying, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's absolutely amazing. Um. You know, there is, a, there is a sense where the veracity of the gospel is being rooted in what it, Paul is enduring. Um, there's no other organization on earth in which somebody suffers for others the way Paul was willing and joyfully suffered for the good of the church as a bondservant of Christ. Um, 
you know, if we adopted the mindset that we are servants of God and servants of the gospel, and if we took that mindset to ourselves, then we would inevitably also think of ourselves as servants to others. Um, The best servants of the gospel are those that think about serving others. It's not just... It's not just the vertical dimension, me and God, and I am serving God. It is, if I am serving the Lord, I am serving his people. And Paul is willing not only to go a far way for the people of God, he is willing to be imprisoned for their good. He's willing to be in chains for their good. Notice, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, this is one of the hardest verses in the New Testament, Uh, Some people have said about this verse, uh, this teaches that Jesus didn't really suffer to the full extent that he needed to for the redemption of his people. That's not what this is teaching. The New Testament everywhere tells us that Christ suffered once, the just for the unjust. By one offering, he has forever perfected those who are being sanctified. Um, So the apostolic witness throughout the New Testament is that Jesus accomplished redemption perfectly. Notice Paul already told us that in uh, the end of verse 20. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So Paul's already told us that Jesus has accomplished everything necessary to reconcile us to God, to reconcile all things in heaven and on earth, making peace through the blood of his cross. So what does Paul mean? Well, I think the most straightforward explanation is that Paul is speaking in terms of Christ as the head of the church. Now, notice that uh, Paul said that back in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. And there is a union between Jesus and believers that is so inseparable and so real, a mystical union between Christ and believers, between you and the Lord Jesus, Um, So much so, the Westminster Confession actually says that when you die and your body is six feet under or spread somewhere, um, that your body is still united to Jesus in the grave. That's awesome. That when we die, even our lifeless bodies are mystically united to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you're going to be raised on the last day. Paul will speak about union with Christ 150 times in the New Testament. Now, why is this so important to Paul to think what I'm enduring in the flesh is filling up what is lacking or what is left over in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his church, for those he's united to? Because Paul understood, and this is awesome, when Paul was converted, Paul understood that he was really persecuting Jesus. Jesus comes to him on the Damascus road. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul wasn't persecuting Jesus. He was, he was dragging Christians to jail. Um, and yet when Jesus confronts Saul of Tarsus for the first time in his life, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? The first thing Jesus teaches Saul of Tarsus is about union with Christ. Isn't that awesome? The first thing he teaches them is that my people are united to me. Your hatred for them is because of your hatred for me. I wrote a track in seminary. I'm not big on tracks, but it was a long time ago, and 
Tracts were still a thing, I think. And uh, I wrote a tract in seminary called, Don't You Just Hate Christians? I thought this would draw people in because people hate Christians. But they don't really hate Christians. They hate Christ. And so what Paul endured, the sufferings he endured, were for the sake of the church, but they were because of the world's hatred for Christ, and they were for the building up of the church. They were for the edifying of the church. Everything he endured, it it accrued to spiritual benefit for the church. Um, The persecutor became the persecuted so that he might encourage and edify those who would believe in Christ and themselves be persecuted. Isn't that awesome? God's reciprocal wisdom that he, he builds into the very ministry of Paul everything he's doing in the church for all generations. How could John Bunyan endure what he did? How could we endure if God called us to? Because God had already built into the apostolic ministry everything necessary for us to understand what he's doing. Now, notice then Paul goes on to speak um, of his stewardship from God for the church. He has said that he was a servant. He has said that he suffered. And now he says he's a steward. God had entrusted something special to Paul. And Paul understood that as a servant, as one who was suffering for Christ, there was something that had been given to him that, that he was to to safeguard and to carry out. Now, um, if you think about stewardship, um, all of stewardship is receiving something from somebody else that isn't your own. And understanding that Paul didn't um, invent the gospel. Paul didn't come up with anything. Paul, Paul said nothing original in one sense. All he did was received from Christ the message of the gospel and fully made known the word of God. Notice that he says, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Now, Paul is going to talk about this idea of mystery because there are mystery religions in his day. There are counterfeit religions. Brian's talked about this a lot. There is Jewish asceticism, right? There is Jewish mysticism going on that Paul is combating. And there were religions that said, well, if you're with us and you're one of us, you can be brought into this secret society and you can understand these secret mysteries and, and we're really the enlightened ones. There are, there are false religions like that today all over the world. I think there are 4,200 false religions in the world. Uh, last estimate. Those are the ones that people actually speak about. And um, Paul is saying here, there is a mystery, and I am making known a mystery, but it's not a mystery that you can't know. It's not something you can't know. It's something that God kept secret from ages and generations, but now, and this is amazing, don't lose the wonder of this, now has made known to his saints. Um. Jesus said to the disciples that many kings and righteous men longed to see what you see and could not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And he went so far as to say that the greatest person before his coming who ever lived from creation till he came was John the Baptist. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets because he stood and pointed to Christ and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in the flesh pointed to him. 
And Jesus said, but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than him. So there are mysteries in the New Testament that were kept secret, as it were, concealed from ages and generations, and now God has fully opened the treasury of his eternal mysteries for you, for you. That's amazing. That's absolutely amazing that when you open your Bibles and the Holy Spirit opens the eyes of your heart, you can see the eternal mysteries that generations and ages for thousands and thousands of years could not see and hear. You know, I'm convicted often of how dull my heart is. Just, we have these incredible eternal mysteries, and, and we don't want to crack our Bibles so often. But Paul says, look, I've been entrusted with the stewardship to fully make known the mystery, to fully make known the word of God. Now, part of that was Paul fulfilling scripture. Part of it was Paul writing the rest of the New Testament. God had given him a special stewardship to to open the riches of Christ, to hold Christ before his people and set him out in all of his nuances and all of his glory and splendor. But notice he says, this is now revealed to his saints. To them, what is the mystery? What is the epicenter of the mystery? He says, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you. Now, in the Old Testament, you know this, not many Gentiles were converted. Um, God had sequestered the ministry of the word and the gospel to the Jewish nation. In the New Testament, Paul had a special stewardship to carry the gospel to the nations and to explain to them that The end result of his ministry, the end result of all gospel ministry, the end result of all preaching of the word is that Christ would be formed in you. Remember in Galatians when the gospel's at risk and and, uh, it's almost lost and and the apostle Paul has to go in and he has to rebuke Simon Peter and um, he has to defend justification by faith alone. And and, and Paul says to the Galatian Christians, "I, I fear for you lest you be drawn away from the gospel. And then he says, I am in anguish again like a, like a mother giving birth so that Christ would be formed in you. So that all of Paul's ministry was helping the saints understand the mystery and become the recipients of Jesus indwelling them. Now that has massive implications for all of our, all of our life. If I preeminently think of Christianity as what I do, what I don't do, how I'm doing, what my track record is, then I've completely misunderstood the Christian message. The mystery of Christianity is that the preeminent Christ takes up his residence in our hearts by faith in him. And he conforms us more and more to his image. I was thinking about this this week in light of different opinions in the church widespread um, over our current situation, and, and everyone has opinions, and that's fine. Um, but I thought if, if, if we looked at our brothers and sisters in church next to us, and, and for all churches, not just for Wayside, for all churches— and we saw one in whom Christ 
dwells. We saw our brothers and sisters as one in whom the preeminent Christ dwells now. What difference would that make in our interactions? On every level, every day, in the home, husbands and wives, parents and children, children and parents, if we viewed one another as one in whom the Lord Jesus, the preeminent one, the creator, the creator of the universe, the redeemer and savior indwells. He takes up residence in our hearts. And, and then beyond that, in our lives, if I, if I remember that Christ dwells in me and, and I am looking to him by faith alone, I'm not going to want to, in a sense, drag him into sin. Because whatever I go into, I am, in that sense, dragging the Lord Jesus into. Um, this, this has all of life implications for everything. Paul says, the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So that it's not just that Christ dwells in me now, but that he has guaranteed for us that everlasting hope so that whatever we're going through now, including Paul's sufferings, the afflictions he's enduring, are, he can say elsewhere they're, they're light. These light afflictions, they weren't light. Uh, Pastor Barrett read to us this morning from 2 Corinthians 11 what Paul endured, the beatings, the scourging, the shipwrecks, the famine, the hunger, the sleeplessness. That, that doesn't feel light to me. I don't want to go through that, that. But that Paul who went through that, that same apostle says, our light afflictions, which are but for a moment, are working for us a far more eternal weight of glory so that Paul can understand whatever we endure by way of suffering now is light compared to the glory that awaits us because of the Christ who indwells us. There's a glory that awaits you because there's a Christ who indwells you. Isn't that awesome? He's going to bring you to glory if he indwells you now. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now, Notice here um, in verse 28 and 29, the apostle is going to talk more pointedly about the second benefit of his suffering. And very briefly, I want us to consider this. He says, there's, there's another benefit. The first reason I suffer, he says, is to fully make known the word of God. The second reason I suffer he says, is to fully present the saints mature before God. So the end result of all that Paul endured was to present you before the Lord mature, build up in Christ. Now, notice there he says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ for this I toil. Now, I heard a story this week um, a uh, older minister in Scotland who I really respect uh, said that he had gone to visit a man in his late 70s whose wife had just died. And um, in the course of their conversation, this man asked him, would you please go see my little girl? And he wrote down an address, and this minister said, well, I thought it was strange. This man's in his late 70s, and it, it got me wondering how he has a little girl. And he said, so he, he goes to the place where uh, the man had written down the address, and it, it's a hospital. And he walks in, and the nurse directs him to the room where this man's daughter is. And he said, there she was on the floor, 
45 years old, playing with dolls. And he said, my heart broke. He said, my heart broke to see this woman in her mid-40s, but she had the mentality of a child. Now, how much we should care about maturity in Christ, how, how, how wrong it is to think about people never maturing in the faith, never growing to the maturation that Christ has redeemed us to grow to. If, if our hearts be broken over something, seeing a grown adult playing with children's toys in that state at that time, how much should we care? And Paul cared deeply. The apostle will say in Ephesians 4 that the end goal of his ministry was that the body would build itself up in love, that it would attain to the stature of the fullness of Christ, that, that the end goal of gospel ministry is that the saints would all become mature in Christ, would be, would be fixing their own eyes on Jesus, would be growing in the knowledge of God, would be growing in their gifts, in using their gifts abundantly, and, and that we would be able to look at each other and say, I see growth in the saints. Paul understands that suffering is to that end. Now, how do we grow? Um, I think if there's one question that every true believer once answered is, what is the secret to the Christian life? What is it? Just tell me. I mean, I'm tempted to go to theologians I respect and say, just, just tell me, what is, the, what is the secret? What do I have to do? And therein is the problem. What do I have to do? Notice what Paul says in verse 28. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. So how do we become mature believers? It's through the faithful proclamation of the Lord Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, reigning, and returning. So that the only job, and I say this cautiously, the only job your pastors have is to preach Christ fully with all of the warnings about rejecting him and all of the instruction about embracing him and following him. And as he is proclaimed faithfully, the saints are matured. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, and, and I'll say this this morning to us, God forbid that I or anyone else should ever stand in this pulpit and preach about anyone or anything else than Jesus Christ crucified and risen. That's it. And there are myriads of churches all across this country and the world that preach good advice, good counsel, sometimes good stories, sometimes bad stories, themselves, their experiences, they give lots of practical advice, and it sounds great to multitudes of professing Christians, but Christ is not proclaimed. The way Paul understood he was going to present every saint mature in Christ on Judgment Day was to preach the one who atoned for the sins of his people, who took the judgment they deserve so that they would not fall under the wrath of God. Um, I know in this church the doctrine of eternal punishment is proclaimed. Um, I know that it's not in a lot of churches. That's part of the warning. There is a day of judgment, and if you have not come to Jesus Christ, 
I and your pastors and elders would urge you to, to flee to the Savior. The Apostle Paul would urge you to flee to Christ. Uh, David Dixon, a Scottish theologian, said, um, I take all of my bad works and I put them in a pile. As he thinks about Judgment Day, he said, I take all my bad works, I put them in a pile. He said, I take all my good works, I put them in the same pile, and then I flee to Christ. <laughs> it's a great statement, and you have to do it. I take all my bad works, put them in a pile, all my good works, I flee to Christ. Um, that's, that's, that's the secret to the Christian life. That's the secret to maturing. Um, we are called by God to keep our eyes steadfastly fixed on Christ, laying every weight aside, every sin that so easily besets us. Let us run with endurance the race, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I hope that you will be encouraged this morning, just a few very, very brief takeaways, to adopt a servant mentality, that you will think of yourself as a servant for the good of others, that you will be willing to suffer if God calls you to for the good of others. That's a hard one. But God may very well call any one of us to suffer greatly for the benefit of others. That you would adopt a mindset of being a steward of the things God has entrusted in his word to you as a Christian, and that you would be keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus so that you'll be maturing in the faith. That's why the Apostle Paul was in prison writing this letter. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says this morning to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we acknowledge that we have often forgotten that we are your servants, that we are called to suffer, and that we are called to be stewards. We pray that you would press these truths into our minds and hearts. We pray that you would give us grace to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus, that you would fix the eyes of our hearts steadfastly on the one who is the author and finisher of our faith, Lord Jesus, would you mature your saints in this church? Would you build us up and establish us in the faith? We pray these things in your name. Amen.